think it's so important to have powerful women at every level of business, of sports, because young girls need to look to that and need to say, I can do that too. I looked to Billie Jean King when I wanted to raise men, to Annika Stornstan, because they did it. They achieved what I wanted to, and it helped push me forward. And I think we just need to keep pushing the envelope, keep breaking the next glass ceiling so that the next generation can reach even higher than what we achieved. Hello, and welcome to season two of The Story of Woman. In today's world, it can feel like change is happening, but only in the wrong direction. While we agree there's still a lot of work to do, we're reframing that story. I'm your host, Anna Steckline, and each episode of this season, I'll be exploring how women make change happen from those at the top helping to drive it. We'll look at where we are in this long march to equality, what lies ahead, and how important you are in the fight. This isn't a story of a world that's doomed to oppress women forever. This is a story of an opportunity to grow stronger than ever before, exactly as womankind has always done. Hello, and welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. My conversation today was a pretty surreal one because it was with someone that I grew up watching on TV every time the Winter Olympics came around for pretty much my whole younger years. She was a household name in America and likely elsewhere in the world, Lindsay Vaughn. Lindsay is a ski racer and has won so many titles and championships that she has the third highest super ranking of all skiers, men or women. And when she retired in 2019, she was the most decorated American skier of all time. A lot of the records she broke along the way were men's records, and as you'll hear us talk about today, Lindsay tried to take that a step further and compete against men in their races, but sadly, the sport just wasn't ready for that yet. What I really love about Lindsay is her unabashed confidence and competitiveness, something that we'll get into today because, well, you might think that, yeah, of course she has these things because she's a professional athlete. So it makes sense that she's confident and competitive. As it turns out, if you're a female professional athlete, you still aren't protected from the infuriating and pervasive stereotypes that as a woman, you should be neither confident nor competitive. In our conversation today, we talk about this and other double standards Lindsay was held to, such as everyone's wish that she just not look so aggressive when flying down a mountain at 80 miles per hour, but also that she not look too feminine either, of course. We also talk about the ski industry and sports as a whole, which have made a lot of progress, especially in recent years. I'm not going to read Lindsay's bio now because I pretty much do that a couple minutes into the interview, listing out all of her many, many, many racing awards. But in addition to that and her foundation and her production company, both of which we talk about in our conversation, she has a new book out that's called Rise, which is a memoir that tells her story as a kind of fixture in the American sports landscape for almost 20 years. And because her career was so long, it really spanned a big transformation that America underwent in recent decades and how it recognizes and celebrates female athletes. And a lot of her story really demonstrates the challenges women faced in the world of sports during that period, and also how she helped to blaze a trail for the next generation of female athletes. 
So hopefully the next time a woman is flying down a mountain at 80 miles per hour, we say, wow, isn't that impressive? Instead of, wow, if she would only just smile a little. This was such an enjoyable conversation, getting to talk to Lindsay, again, whose name I just grew up seeing on the TV, and getting an insight into what it's like flying down a mountain faster than most cars drive on the freeway, and hearing about her whole journey of going from a nine-year-old dreaming of being an Olympian to the most decorated American skier of all time. That's all from me for now. Please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Vaughn. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really, really excited to talk with you today. I want to start by having you try to describe for us what ski racing is like, because To describe it in your book, I loved this line in your new book, Rise, you wrote, it's like if you drive your car on a highway in a place where the speed limit is legally 75 miles per hour, and then you stick your head out the window. That's how it feels, except when you're ski racing, there is no car, there is only you, which of course means no pads, no protection, (laughs) and Having watched some of your races again and preparing for this interview, I'm just amazed that humans are capable of going down a mountain 80 miles per hour on two tiny little boards. So yeah, what can you tell us about what that's like? I mean, that's a pretty good analogy. (laughs) I think a lot of people can't, to your point, believe that humans can do that and go down an icy mountain at 85 miles an hour. So I mean, that's how we feel with the wind in our face when we're going that fast. But also, it's very similar when you're driving a car. It's a very similar visual looking at your line and where you're going. It just is happening a lot faster. And obviously, to the point, there's no car. So (laughs) there's a lot less protection. I love that feeling of going that fast and the rush and the adrenaline. That's what I love most about skiing and also the fact that we're out on the mountain and there's nothing that's stopping you. I like that feeling of freedom and independence and I don't find it anywhere else. Yeah, I can only imagine what that's like. I've always been a pizza pie going down the mountain kind of person. <laughs> hey, so. Pizza's good too. Pizza's good too. So then how did you come to enjoy flying down a mountain at 80 miles per hour with no protection. Can you tell us a bit about your story getting into skiing from childhood and how you got started? Well, I grew up in Minnesota. So there's no mountains to go 80 miles an hour on. It's <laughs> I grew up at Buck Hill and it's about 260 vertical feet, which is probably less than most bunny hills on any other mountain. But it was a great place for me to just get my base. I learned my technical skill set there. I had an amazing coach, Eric Seiler, who was actually also my dad's coach growing up. He's from Austria. He's still kicking. He's 97 years old. He's a legend. My dad realized that I needed the mountains to be able to really expand my skill set and to be able to do more than just slalom. And so we moved to Colorado and that's when I fell in love with downhill. I mean, I did my first little mini downhill when I was nine years old and I loved it. You know, I loved going fast and I just continued to go faster and faster until, you know, I was racing downhill races when I was like 14, 15 and 
then obviously made it to the World Cup. And that ended up to be my strongest discipline, shockingly. (laughs) Yes. And I'm going to read off some of your stats from that in a minute. But speaking of when you were nine years old, you didn't just like casually start skiing at this age. At the age of nine, you set a goal of getting into the Olympics in eight years' time. So tell us a little bit about that story and how you knew at that age that that's what you wanted to do. And then also, what did your parents say when they have a nine-year-old coming to them and saying, this is what I want to do in eight years? Well, I met Babu Street when I was nine, and that was a tipping point for me. You know, I had loved ski racing up until that point. It was you know, really the only thing I was good at. I had friends. But when I met Peekaboo at an autograph signing in Minnesota, I realized that that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be an Olympian. And it really gave me this solid goal. And I came home and I said, Dad, this is what I want to do. How do we get there? And he said, well, the next Olympics that you could compete at would be Salt Lake in 2002. You'd be 17 years old. He didn't even blink. He didn't bat an eye. He didn't laugh. He didn't snicker. He was like, well, it's going to be hard work. Are you ready? And I'm like, I'm ready, dad. You know, I'm nine years old. <laughs> and we made like a calendar. We made basically a 10-year plan and what races I would need to do and what level I would need to be by a certain time period to make the games. And we hit pretty much every check mark, and I eventually made it. Yes, you did that and a lot more. So you have not one, but three Olympic medals, eight World Championship medals, four Women's World Cup overall championships. You set a number of new records for women, including 82 World Cup victories, which, by the way, was only five away from having the most victories ever. You also set records for men and women, including winning 20 World Cup Crystal Globe titles. And you have the third highest super ranking of all skiers men or women. And that doesn't even cover everything. We're going to run out of time. So I'd say your nine-year-old self would be quite proud. Would you? Yeah, definitely. My goal was just to be in the Olympics and (laughs) to win a medal eventually, but I never set out to break records. I loved going fast. And I think the more success I had, the more I wanted to continue to get better and to have more success. And It just kind of snowballed, but I definitely never expected to be in this position in my career. Absolutely not. It's incredible. Like you said, when you were starting to train, you just started going faster and it's like you just kept going faster and faster and faster (laughs) for a few decades. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So in order to fly down a mountain at this speed and in order to win all of these medals and World Cups, you have to be confident competitive, and aggressive. Three things that women aren't exactly encouraged to be. You wrote in your book that there's a massive double standard when it comes to competitiveness and aggression in male and female athletes, one that I felt hit up against many times. And you pointed out the irony in the book. I mean, it is incredibly ironic that even professional female athletes are expected to be less competitive and less aggressive. I mean, that's literally your job. How did you see this play out in your career? How did you come up against it? It happened a lot with the media, how I approached ski racing, how I approached wanting to win. And I think people, they expect you to be more soft, you know, more dainty or feminine or however you want to picture it. I think a lot of people didn't appreciate the fact that I wanted to win. 
I love ski racing because I love ski racing. I am passionate about what I do, but I wanted to win and I hate losing. And so I was very vocal about it. I always was authentic. I always spoke what was on my mind. It definitely rubbed people the wrong way sometimes. And I couldn't really understand why. And I saw that often with Serena, for example. She was always vocal and you could tell she always wanted to win. And she got so much criticism for it. And when you look at someone like John McEnroe, he is a hero because of it. He is on a pedestal because of the way he was vocal and ferociously competitive and yelling at the linesman. But Mm -hmm. if a woman yells at the linemen, then it's like, oh my God, you need to kick her out of the tournament. And I just always felt that double standard was so unfair because we're athletes. We all want to win. If you literally say that you don't want to win, I don't believe you. (laughs) I wouldn't believe any athlete who says that. So it's not fair to say it's okay for a man to want to win, but it's not okay for a woman to want to win. Again, I never changed who I was because people didn't like what I was saying. I just kept saying what I felt. And I think that's why a lot of women especially could resonate with me because I never conformed. Yeah. And we think definitely it'll resonate with a lot of us, even if we aren't professional athletes, this wanting to do well, wanting to win. Even if you feel that strongly, you feel like you have to keep it inside because exactly as you say, if you say that out loud, you're breaking a taboo. And Again, I just find it so ironic that that's literally your job. And you felt like you would get pushed back if you even talk about it. Like, that's the whole point. (laughs) That's the whole point. And, you know, I would cross the finish line and I would scream and I would be so happy and like pumped up. And everyone's like, whoa, tone it down, Lindsay. I'm like, what what do you want me to do? (laughs) What do you want me to do? Because, you know, if you didn't get pumped up, people would be like, oh, she's not even grateful. She's not even even excited. She's not thankful. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's just such a double standard. I think it's stupid. Yeah, (laughs) me too. Me too. (laughs) You mentioned in the book, and you know, I agree with this, that being competitive is important. It's important to have that kind of drive, whether you're an athlete or not. So I'm curious why you feel like it's important to be competitive. What do you feel like it does for a person, whether you're an athlete or not? Well, I think generally competition is something that can push you. It's not really a comparing yourself to others as it is pushing yourself. And I always felt like I was competing against myself. It was me in the mountain. I didn't feel like I was racing against another woman. I was racing against how fast can I push myself? And when you're in sports, you have first place, second place, third place. And I think sports is a unique platform in which if you don't win, You can go and you say, okay, I could work harder in this area or this area and I can make improvements. And you know what? Next time I'm going to win. And even if you don't win, it's more of picking yourself back up if you fail and pushing yourself further. And I think a lot of kids, especially, you know, if they don't do what they set out to do the first time, they quit. And I think it's important in sports and in competition to be able to say it's okay to fail. Just pick yourself back up and try again. That is, I think, ultimately the lesson in which I think is so important in sports and competition. Couldn't agree more. There's so much that sports and competition teaches you for off the mountain. So how did you foster your confidence and be comfortable using your voice in the face of this kind of pushback? Well, I think generally I got a lot of confidence from my preparation. I worked so hard in the gym 
that when I got on the mountain, I knew that I was in the best shape of anyone there. And I knew that with the skill set that I had on the slopes that I could win. And I just never doubted that. I never doubted my preparation. I never doubted how strong I was. I never doubted that I could win. And I think that confidence allowed me to be able to say, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to be me. And also, if I don't win, that's fine. I'll win the next day. I also think that I was oddly confident on the mountain, but I was far less so off the mountain. I wasn't really comfortable with who I was as a person, although I was extremely confident in who I was as a racer. And I think it took a lot of time to develop and to really find that confidence off the slopes. But the mountain's always where I felt at home and, again, uniquely confident. Yeah, and I think probably a lot of us can relate to that as well, where we feel more confident in some areas, less confident in others, but building up your skills in an area allows you to build that confidence and then you're more able to use your voice because you're confident in whatever it is that you're doing. Exactly. So adding to the irony of all of this, you aren't supposed to come off as aggressive or outspoken because that's not really feminine, but you also can't be too feminine because that's not appropriate for female athletes either, apparently. (laughs) There's this fine line that you're expected to walk. And I thought the part that you wrote about in your book about makeup and femininity was quite interesting and not a perspective I hear very often. So I'd love for you to tell us about your interest in hair and makeup and the kinds of pushback that you received for it. In ski racing, we're always covered up. I've got helmet and goggles and my speed suit, and there's really not much of me that you actually see as opposed to soccer or tennis, for example. You can see exactly who you are and your facial expressions. And so really all you see is my hair, which <laughs> I loved having a long blonde braid because you could always spot me out and, and it was end up being like my trademark. But I felt like makeup was a part of my game face. I had a special routine for races, and I felt the most confident when I did that. And I got a lot of pushback from especially a lot of men, a lot of people that were actually on my team. And I didn't really understand it because it really had nothing to do with anyone else. It was my way of expressing myself, of being a strong, confident woman. And honestly, I don't even know why people had an opinion on it. Yes. Because it has yes. nothing to do with them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I felt confident. And I leaned into it and it became my thing. And even to the point of some of the Austrian coaches were telling their athletes that they needed to wear makeup uh, like me. It kind of went full circle. What? So. It was such a bizarre thing on both sides. And I think for me, it was just important to express who I am. And it was just a part of my game face. End of story. I love that. I love that. And like you said, who cares? Why does everybody care? care? (laughs) (laughs) It's like all of these not allowing confidence, aggression, encouraging femininity, but not too much. It's just all these made up rules and boxes that we put women in, we put men in too. They just have different boxes. You know, they can be aggressive, but they can't be sad. Yeah. And I think aggression too was something for me. Like, I mean, we're racing down the mountain at 85 miles an hour. (laughs) Do you expect me to be very passive? And (laughs) yeah, that sounds dangerous. I know it is dangerous actually. (laughs) 
And when I'm in the starting gate, I realize that I have a very aggressive face on and I'm breathing fire. But that's what it takes to win a downhill race. You're literally risking your life. And I mean, if you look at a football player, they look pretty much the same. (laughs) So I don't know why I can't make that face or someone needs to comment on my face when that's honestly what it takes for me to win a race. Yeah, it should be whatever it takes. Doesn't matter what your face looks like. Yes. We'll be right back after this short break to hear Lindsay talk about her years-long attempt to get involved in the men's races. So on a slightly different note, so as I mentioned, you hold a few all-time records for both men and women. And I was really intrigued about this path that you took for a little while trying to ski against men in competition. And you even talked to Billie Jean King about it, who of course famously played against and beat in three straight sets, the former number one ranked men's tennis player, Bobby Riggs. So I'd love to hear why you wanted to compete against men, but I'm also curious to hear what advice did Billy give you when you talked to her? Well, it all started when I was training with the men. I mean, I always train with the men, or at least I tried to, because the men were faster than the women. That's just how it is. They're stronger, they're better, they're faster, and I wanted to elevate my skiing. So I wanted to ski against the best. And when I was training with them, I was training with the top five downhill skiers in the world at the time. And I was right with them. On some runs, I was beating them. And my coaches jokingly said, you should race against the men, you'd be pretty competitive. And then I was like, maybe I should. And that would elevate my skiing and I could actually see what my limits were. That was really my ultimate goal was to see how hard I could push myself. Because When I skied with the men, I elevated my skiing. There's no question about it. I skied better every time I skied with them. And if I could race against them, I was like, I wonder what I could achieve. I tried for about six years and I just kept getting shut down at every turn. I did get support from the Canadian Ski Federation, which was really amazing and I appreciated it. And I got a lot of support from, I'd say, half of the men on the World Cup. And I asked Billie Jean, I said, what does it take to do this? And she said, well, you have an uphill battle. And for me, it was an exhibition. So I didn't have a league or the regulations that you do. So it's going to be a long fight. And I also talked with Annika Sorenstein because she also actually competed against the men in the PGA. And I thought that was the biggest example of actually being in the men's league. And they would just shut it down. And I was so disappointed because... It would have been a huge personal goal, but I think it would also have really helped women in sports, especially in ski racing, to see that example set. But unfortunately, there's a lot of politics and a lot of people who didn't want that to happen or didn't want me to beat any men, and and I got shut down. Well, perhaps you knocked on the door, and it might not have opened, but perhaps the next woman that comes along. Exactly. exactly. a crack. Yes. The next person that comes along, they're going to say, you know what? We just went through this for six years with Lindsay. Maybe we should reconsider. There's new people. There's more women in these positions of power, perhaps, which is something we'll get into next. So on that note, on women in positions of power, 
most of what we've been talking about so far is differences at an individual level, but there's also a gendered imbalance in the institution of skiing and sports generally as well, especially when it comes to these positions of power. So my understanding is that alpine skiing is somewhat unique on this front because while there is some equitable parts to it in terms of participation and races and even pay, that when you look at the decision makers, coaches, International Ski Federation, and even some of the more niche areas of the industry like equipment, suppliers, ski manufacturers, and the people managing sponsorship, when you look at these kinds of areas, there's a lot, lot less women. So I'm curious what you can tell us about this problem and if you notice that in your own career. I mean, it's always been present. I maybe know three or four coaches in my entire skiing career. I think inherently skiing is a difficult sport to coach for women. It's a very labor intensive job and I personally wouldn't want to do it. It <laughs> doesn't sound that fun to be honest with you. Standing on the side of a slope for six hours a day freezing doesn't, doesn't sound too appealing to me. You don't even I like don't, the cold. I actually love yeah. cold. No. <laughs> That was a a funny tidbit from your book. I didn't expect. (laughs) It's it's why I ski fast. I can get down the mountain faster and put my clothes back. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) There's not a lot of women around, but I honestly didn't think that prohibited me from getting better or I didn't feel like I wasn't represented. It just kind of was the way it was. And no man told me that I couldn't achieve something. I always had really supportive men around me, which I think was a really critical part. I think if women wanted to do the job, that we should support them. I don't think that there's, again, many women that do, but I think that there could be definitely a lot more women in the decision-making of not just skiing, but all sports in the C-suite level and people that are able to recognize what women need and support them on that level. Because even if there's not coaches, you still need someone looking out for women's rights as a whole on the entire circuit. And that takes people in the position of power to be able to do that. So I think there's progress. I definitely do see progress. It's not where it needs to be. But I think how we've adapted in the equality of women in the business place in general is trickling into sports. I think most companies that I see try to have an equal number of men and women. And I think that is coming into sports. And for example, the US Olympic team had a mandate that it had to be an equal number of male and female participants, which ended up being a little bit controversial because there was maybe more men that should have been racing and less women. We didn't really have the same depth on both sides. So it ended up being a little bit off of what it should have been, but at least the effort is being made and there are people that are looking out for that and trying to push that forward. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it's getting better and there are people looking out. This is music to my ears (laughs) (laughs) because it's obviously important to have women in these positions, not just to ensure that they're there, like you said, representing women and making the decisions that are going to impact women, but also as role models. You know, you mentioned right in the beginning Peekaboo Street, who was a big influence on you. And obviously, she's a skier versus someone in a position of power in the C-suite and everything like we've been talking about. But I still think having women in these types of positions would serve a role as role models, important in two different ways there. So on that note, 
You mentioned Peekaboo Street, but yeah, I'd like to hear a bit more about who your influences were and how important you feel like having role models are for getting more women into the sport. I really think that it's important to have someone to look up to in order to have aspirations to reach that level or higher. I think when kids don't have anyone to look up to, they think that that's the highest that they can achieve. And so I think it's so important to have powerful women at every level of business, of sports, because young girls need to look to that and need to say, I can do that too. And that's what Peekaboo did for me. I didn't watch ski racing on TV. There wasn't ski racing on TV. If I was lucky, I got a VHS tape of like the winning runs from the year before. And I wasn't able to have anyone really to look up to and tell her. And she was someone tangible. She wasn't just a cartoon character that I read in a comic book. She was an actual person. And because of her, I aspired to be bigger and better than what I thought I could be. I really think it's important to have women like that. I mean, I looked to Billie Jean King when I wanted to race men, to Annika Stornstan, because they did it. They achieved what I wanted to, and it helped push me forward. And I think we just need to keep pushing the envelope, keep breaking the next glass ceiling so that the next generation can reach even higher than what we achieved. Well, you have certainly been doing that. And I also love this little tidbit from your book that your dad cut out magazine clippings of strong female athletes across a variety of different sports and had them hanging up because he wanted you to know what was possible and to help you visualize it. I love that. And I can only imagine how many little girls rooms have you up on the walls now. Well, well, I hope so. (laughs) My dad was really forward thinking in that way. And I mean, when I was nine, he said, this is a really great time to be a female in sports because you have so many more opportunities than the women before you did. If I didn't have Peekaboo to look up to, I don't know what I would have achieved. And that was the premise for my foundation is really that hopefully I could be what Peekaboo was for me to other girls and not just in skiing, but just in life, empowering them to believe in themselves because A lot of kids in general, not just girls, but a lot of children don't get the positive reinforcement. And people actually tell them not that they can do something, but quite the opposite. And it's really frustrating to hear that when I work with kids because to put them down at such a young age, it limits their entire lives to what they could achieve. So I hope that I've been able to empower some girls and boys as well. And I will definitely do my best to continue to do that. I have no doubt that you have, but I would love to have you tell us a bit more about the foundation. So you've alluded to it there, but yeah, the Lindsay Vaughn Foundation, can you tell us what it is, why you wanted to start it? And yeah, what do you guys do? It really came from Peekaboo and 90 seconds spent with her changed my life. And so what can I do when I interact with kids for a day, for a weekend, if I empower them with scholarships and programs? And we started in 2015 and So our mission is to empower girls through scholarships and programs, underserved girls. It's been so rewarding. I've seen the kids that come to our camps come in very meek and shy and leave empowered and courageous. And that's ultimately the goal is for them to believe in themselves, just like Peekaboo allowed me to believe in myself. And we've been able to serve thousands of girls and we've given out over a million dollars in scholarships. And I'm really proud of what we've been able to achieve so far. And just going to continue to try to help. Yeah, that's incredible. Over a million dollars in scholarships. So you wrote in your book to read another little excerpt here. 
a lot of women stand out not just because of their victories, but because of the possibilities they created, the ideas they inspired, and the path they paved for the next generation. So this is all along the lines of what we've been talking about. And like I said, I think little girls around the world are going to have posters of you on their walls. You're doing the work with the foundation. You've cracked the ceiling when it comes to being able to compete against men on the mountains. But I'm still going to ask you this question generally about what ways do you feel like you've changed the game for women in skiing? I think I've hopefully changed their mindset. I feel like one thing that people, especially women, have connected with me on is my ability to overcome adversity. I've had so many injuries in my life. I've been divorced. I've had a pretty turbulent personal life as well. And I think I've empowered women to believe in themselves and to not let any adversity bring them down. I had so many girls come up to me and said, I was injured or I was in a bad relationship and you inspired me to keep pushing ahead. And that's what I hopefully want to do is empower women to believe in themselves, to believe in what they're capable of, no matter what stands in their way. Amazing. Mindsets. I love that. So then what is next for Lindsay Vaughn? What does the future <laughs> hold? There's so much. I'm really <laughs> grateful for every opportunity that I have. And I've worked really hard to put myself in a position to have these opportunities after my skiing career. But I've got my production company and we just got a big CBS deal and we're trying to get some things slated. And I've got my ski line with head, my goggles, my unique ski goggles. Again, my foundation is a huge priority for me. And I've got my traditional sponsorships as well. I work with The Rock, uh, Project Rock with Under Armour, which has been really fun. And he's such a girl dad, you know, he's such an advocate for women and girls. And it's so great to be able to work with someone like that. That's not just an amazing actor and businessman, but also just an amazing person and friend. So I don't know. I have a lot on my plate. I'm just excited to have new challenges every day. You know, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is the opportunity to have a new challenge. That was definitely a thread through your book. As soon as you got over one mountain, figuratively and literally, yeah, <laughs> what's the next one? What's the next one? In the book, you really painted the picture and you're describing it now of how you're bringing that energy, that mindset from the mountain to business now and to production. So you're creating films. Yeah, you've got a lot of different hats on. It's really cool to see. We're all excited to see what comes next with Lindsay Vaughn. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited too. <laughs> <laughs> and with The Rock. <laughs> Shout out <Yes>. to The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> I'm curious what, just speaking directly perhaps to girls, to women out there, what you would say about finding their confidence and not hiding but fostering their competitiveness? Anything you might say to them? I mean, I think the number one thing is just being authentically you and understanding that you're special and powerful the way you are. It's really looking inside yourself and figuring out, okay, what do I want to achieve and how do I get there and how do I believe in myself? Because honestly, if you don't believe in yourself, who is going to believe in you? So it starts from within. It starts from you believing in yourself and fostering that confidence. For me, journaling really helped because oftentimes I didn't have anyone to talk to on the road. So I got really good at having a conversation with myself and what do I want and what do I need and how do I keep an emotional balance? How do I stay competitive? 
So I think it starts from within in order to find that confidence and competitiveness to get you where you want to go in life. Amazing. And anything else that you would say in general about getting involved in sports or staying? As you mentioned, there's a dropout that can occur at younger ages. I think that understanding that failure is the best tool in your toolbox is so important. Failure is what teaches us what to work on, how to be better. It's not an indicator of when to stop or to quit. It's an indicator of how to get better. And I think that the more people and kids especially understand that, the more we can foster that, the more we're going to develop determined and gritty young kids. I love that. I love that. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you came up against, whether that was a quote unquote failure or another kind of challenge that you had to overcome? I had a lot. I think most people know me, I guess, for my injuries. And I know a lot of people that would have retired after (laughs) any number of my injuries. Mm. I try to always look at it as a positive. What can I learn? How can I be a stronger athlete? And while after every injury, I wasn't as strong physically, I became stronger mentally. And I used that to my advantage. I studied tape. I figured out a different way of tactically approaching the courses so that I could mitigate the pain in my body and to be able to physically do what I needed to do. I had to outsmart my competition. I could no longer physically outski them. I had to outsmart them. And I had a lot of challenges and also a lot of distractions off the mountain. But again, I use that as fuel. Anytime someone that told me that I couldn't do something, I used it. I internalized it. I bottled it up. And then when I was in the starting gate, I let it go. And again, that's something I teach in my foundation because a lot of people, if someone says you can't do something or you're not good enough, they say, oh, you're right. I'm not. I'm going to quit. And that's the wrong response. The response is, why do you think that? What can I do better? And I'm going to show you. And I'm going to prove not just to you, but to myself that I can do it. And so I think that's a really important message and something that has really been, I think, probably the strongest tool set in my repertoire, just being able to say, if someone says that I can't or says that I'm not good enough, I use that to my advantage. Yeah, I think that's a great mindset to have. And yeah, your injuries, we won't have time to get into those. Yeah. But oof. the list is probably longer than my achievements, but it's okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, reading about them just made my body hurt. I think you might have said this in the book. Maybe you don't have a fear center in your brain. Do we think that's the case? Because it's both flying down the mountain at all, everything we described, but then also having these serious injuries and then coming back and doing it again. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the fact that I love what I do. I've never been afraid. I love going fast. And that's something that I think is ingrained in me. But I never hold on to my failures. So when I'm in the starting, I don't think about what I did before. I don't think about crashing or what could happen. I focus on being in the moment and being confident in what I believe I can achieve. And I feel like fear is a really useless emotion because it prohibits us from living, from pushing ourselves. And if I was afraid, I would never have won anything because I crashed so often that I would never have won anything. But I've always just felt like I want to push myself. I want to live. And yes, there is a risk factor. I could actually 
die or be paralyzed. This happened many times in my sport. But I'm out there doing what I love to do, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I always just had that mentality, and I think I also got it from my mom. My mom had a stroke when she had me, and she wasn't able to ski with me or ride a bike. She had a problem with her ankle, and she struggled with her balance. And so I watched her try every sport, and she failed, but she kept trying, and she never got discouraged. She was always positive. And that's always the mindset that I had. And also the mindset that I was lucky to have an opportunity to get back up there, to get back in the starting gate, because my mom did not have that luxury. So I think it's that perspective that I've always had from her that's also allowed me to always be thankful for the opportunity and not to be afraid of what could happen. Another positive role model. So we're getting towards the end of our time. Is there anything else that you would like to say, talk about that we haven't covered? I don't know. I think the older I get, the more I realize how important strong female role models are and how big of an impact they can make. People like Malala, how big of a voice she's had. And I met her recently and I'm just so inspired by people like that. And you realize how big of an impact one person can make on the world. And I read a statistic that if you impact 10 people around you and those 10 people impact 10 people in three generations, we will have impacted the entire world. So I just keep that in perspective of how can we encourage people, children, and how to help them encourage others and just to keep passing that movement forward and how we can be better as human beings. Incredible. Well, that is a lovely note to end on, though I do always like to ask this last question. If people take one thing away from this conversation with you today, what would you want it to be? There's so many things. Um, (laughs) That's a hard one. I think to always believe in yourself is the most important thing. No matter who you are, where you want to go, what you want to be, you have to start with yourself and to believe in yourself. Amazing. Lindsay Vaughn, thank you so much for being here today, having this conversation with me and just being the incredible person that you are. We're excited to see everything that you do in the future. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think that we need more of women's stories in the world, be sure to share with a friend. And subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help us beat those pesky algorithms. Follow us on socials for more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes. And for access to bonus content and ad-free listening, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. This is the best way to help me continue to put out more and better episodes. Or you can buy me a metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs. And in exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep knowing that you are helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Anna Steckline. It was edited by Maddie Searle with communication support by Joe Cummings. A special thanks to Amanda Brown, Kate York, and Dan Kendall for their ongoing production support and invaluable advising. 
Tune into the next episode of The Story of Woman, where I speak with Shia Bastida, a 19-year-old climate justice activist raised in an indigenous community in Mexico, who is now a global leader of the climate movement. I think most of our power in the youth movement does come from that generational injustice. It comes from not knowing all of the facts, all of the climate solutions. It comes about looking the 70-year-old president in the eyes and saying, what are you going to do to ensure that I make it to your age? What are you going to do to ensure that my kids make it to your age? I don't think adults are understanding this yet. I don't think they care about other than the economic. When we go back to the very basics, why am I wanting so much money for my legacy? But what does money matter in a legacy in a planet that doesn't exist? And a special thanks to our Patreon collaborators, Veronica Linares from Values Leadership Consulting, transforming mindsets to put humanity and the planet at the heart of leadership. Christine Beasy from Untangle Money, creators of financial plans designed specifically for women. Dr. Julie Allig of JLA Analytics, your data's talking, are you listening? Joanna Cummings, editor of the Grub Street Journal, the magazine for people who make magazines. Jill Quigley from The Giving Grove, Little Orchards, Big Impact, a nationwide network of little orchards. Andrew Planet, advocate for naming our species human rather than man, and for joint matrilineal surnames. To share your name, business, or message at the end of every episode, sign up to be a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash the story of woman. Get your message out there, listen to bonus content, and rest well, knowing that you're doing your part in helping to elevate the story of woman.